And welcome back to part two of this fascinating conversation we have today with Peter Lavender, where we're taking on a very current and a very timeless topic uh, or angle for the from the topic. And um, we go through what's going on these days, how Tom DeLong announced for the longest time and now the so-called secret space program that Harry Reid and others came out with and 
Also, we have to tie this into the book, Secret Machines. Sure. By the way, I think it's uh, it's very annoying that you don't have an index in this book. It would help me so much when I haven't read it. <laughs> there, is there a reason you don't? Uh, I mean, a table of contents. There's an index. Um, in, in the beginning? A table of con- there is a table of contents. Yes, there is. On page X, one, one, page 13. Roman numeral 13. Mm-hmm. 12, 13, 14, 15. No, that, okay, it's before those. Are you, are you looking at a, at a Kindle version or the hardcover? Uh, no, I'm looking, unfortunately, at uh, PDF. I, I hate PDFs, well, but that's all I have for now. Okay. Yeah. Well, that might be the problem because it's in the book. There's a table of contents. Yeah, okay, but that's in the Kindle. Let me see. I don't know if There's I have. There's no index, and I searched for it on Amazon too. I couldn't find it uh, anywhere. I don't know. Even if I have it, oh, you don't even have the book. <laughs> as a P- I have the books, but I don't have. I don't know if I have a PDF. I'll have to see if. All right. Okay. Yes, I do have the PDF. Right. Okay. Yeah, I just I just looked at it, but there's no index on the PDF. Um, exactly. There wasn't. Right. Yeah, yeah. There isn't. <laughs> too bad. Too Sorry, bad. it's in the book, but not the. It is in the hardcover. Yeah. Okay. It is good because I prefer my books physical. Sure. I, I mainly read them in bed before I go to sleep. So. Sure. I prefer them physical as well. Yeah. But okay, let's move on. Before the break, um, before we started to talk about the practical stuff, you were accounting for kind of your perspective. And it struck me that you're kind of more in line with P- uh, with the Richard Dolan than I first assumed, because he too has this perspective that if we don't know, let's find out mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. That's just common sense. That's scientific. That's decent. That's everybody wants to survive <laughs> to have that sure. perspective. But in a way, you could say that we project, even there, we project. Uh, if you say, you know, if we can't defend ourselves, let's find out what this is. Um, how should I put this? It's a very difficult uh, oh, topic. But absolutely. okay, so let's say that this is some kind of, uh, th- we were dealing with reality and we have to find out what the blueprint of reality is. We all agree about that. But when you guys contact these uh, insiders, these semi-official people, okay, am I to understand you correctly that they agree with this perspective of yours? The perspective of? Of approaching the phenomenon as... Do you do you get the sense that they have some kind of fixed idea about this? No, I think that we're... I think we're consistent. I don't want to speak for everybody because I would have to ask them individually, but I think yeah. those that I've spoken with, I think we more or less agree to take the position that we should be prepared for any eventuality. So we should... Um, it, it, it's it, it's how shall I put this? It's um, economical to regard the phenomenon as a potential threat from the sense of economy of motion, you know, economy of resources. What we have to do is regard this as a potential threat, but not, that that doesn't mean to go and take measures against them or to shoot them out of the sky or try to, which that hasn't seemed to have worked anyway, but. To try to take the position that this is a potential threat. I think we all pretty much agree on that. What we don't agree on, because we simply don't know, is what kind of threat this this is. I mean, uh, Jacques Vallée, for instance, um, talks about the UFO phenomenon as kind of a control mechanism. Mm. He's very famous for that. Um, that's one of the aspects of the elephant that we're talking about. 
yes, possibly a control mechanism. It certainly is controlling a lot of responses to it, and we cannot control it at all. We cannot make it appear, disappear, show up, talk to us, or anything else. They come and go as they like. So we have no control over this mechanism, whatever it is. Then there's Hal Putoff's uh, approach to it, which is that these are not extraterrestrials. They're ultra-terrestrials. Mm. The implication being they might actually have been here all the time. We've just never seen them. We've never understood them because perhaps they have some physical properties that are different from ours. Perhaps they, you know, they're interdimensional or mm. however you want to describe it. But to call them extraterrestrials automatically implies that they come from another planet. Mm. And once you set that up, then you have all these, these this host of critiques that come down the pike, right? Mm. So if they're from another planet, well, how did they get here? Uh, the nearest habitable planet is so many light years. Uh, by the time they got here, how could they possibly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So there's all of these objections to them being extraterrestrial. That's fine. That's why we, we're kind of hesitant to call them that. I don't call them extraterrestrial. I don't take that position because I simply don't know. We have a phenomenon that we have to understand. So I think the people that I've spoken with and the people Tom has spoken with, they're united in the idea that, yes, it's naive to just open our arms and welcome them. Stephen Hawking said the same thing. Mm. The Stephen Hawking's approach is also be very careful. We may not want to be noticed by these, whatever they are. Mm. So there's just, just be cautious, right? Just be cautious. I mean, that you're dealing with, you, could, you would take the same attitude dealing with a wild animal. Mm. in the forest, right? Mm. You wouldn't want to necessarily go out and shoot it, but you would be cautious. You would take evasive maneuvers if it's a giant bear coming down at you or something. Mm. You know? So, I mean, you would you would do things that would save your life and limb without necessarily trying to kill it. And I think that's the approach that a lot of people have um, in government as well, is let's see what this stuff is, but let's do whatever we can to defend ourselves. And the next question always is, well, okay, officer, you know, okay, sergeant, or okay, general, how do you propose we defend ourselves against something that shows up when it wants to, disappears when it wants to, and has aeronautical capabilities that our, fly, our, our ships don't have? You know, what do we do? So that goes to the next question, as I said, well, let's find out. Let's find out what this is. If I lived in Nazi Germany, I would not trust my officials to deal with any potential threat on my behalf. Sure. The same can be said for the military industrial complex. In fact, those people are so paranoid and so intrinsically woven into this old fashioned cold and hot war mentality that precisely if they can't control a phenomenon, they would immediately jump to the paranoia muscle and regard it as a threat. Right. That's by the very definition why it is a threat to them, not necessarily that they have done stuff or noticed us, but precisely because we can't control it. We are living in a materialistic, dualistic, alienated culture and civilization that is precisely a victim of its own primitive paradigm. I appreciate you guys want to take it one step further, but you do it through these people, yep. which kind of makes the whole thing tricky. And they have noticed us because we know they've interfered with atomic weapons. Yeah. And we know there has been some shooting. And I don't doubt for a second we are the one who shoots first. <laughs> uh, here I'm kind of at Greer's. I'm, I'm not saying they are benevolent uh, spiritual blessings for us, but I, I see that they haven't mass interfered 
overtly yet, which they could have done. I'm more prone to think that we're not important enough or we're not in their agenda, whatever, than that they are benevolent necessarily. But we have seen interaction and it hasn't been good. Comment? Sure. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, if you were lived in Nazi Germany, your, your, your analogy there. The problem is if you were a German citizen in Nazi Germany and the Russians were coming in your direction, mm -hmm. you hope that your army would have defended you against them, True. regardless of how you felt about the Nazis. True. So I think that we're kind of in the same position. We're working with, with people who have left the military-industrial complex. Uh, if we talk about Chris Mellon, Luis Elizondo, et cetera, et cetera. These are people who were inside. No, they have. Yeah, no. Now they've come out yeah. and they're cooperating to get this information to the people. We have had, for the first time ever, actual disclosure take place, yes. which is what everybody in the UFO community has been asking for. So, yeah, you're going to get disclosure from, guess what, the military-industrial <laughs> complex, because those are the ones you've accused all this time of withholding that that information. And those are the ones you are demanding disclosure from. Well, now you're getting disclosure. And now we're saying, well, I don't know if I trust them. Well, yeah, of course. But here is the data, right? Mm. We're giving you videos. We're coming out with the rest of it. We're getting more stuff available all the time that we're going to be giving to the public. You make up your mind as to what you think this material is then. you know, It's up to you. And it's not just people in the military-industrial complex. If you look at the website for the To the Stars Academy, you'll see scientists and you know, engineers, people who have been not necessarily part of the military-industrial mm. complex, but people from academia. And we're broadening that to include people from the humanities in general. So it's the concerted effort of all these individual people. Does the military look at everything like a threat because it can't control it? Of course. Do we expect the military to do that? Of course we do. Mm. We expect the military to defend the country. So if they're not doing that, then we think they're asleep on the job then the only thing they're really concerned about is oppressing its own citizens or invading some other country. If they're really concerned with national security, they would be concerned about the UFO phenomenon because they can't control it. The problem is they are set up not to acknowledge something that they cannot control. Mm. And that has been the problem for the last 70 years mm. because to admit they can't control it will cast doubt on their ability to defend the country of anything in the first place. So they have kept quiet. There's been never any margin in the government to come out and say, well, you know, I don't know what this is. We don't know what it is. You guys are on your own. <laughs> you know, They're just not going to do that. There's no margin. I, I buy that scenario in the Cold War, especially early on. But uh, that is long gone as an excuse. In fact, but it has. Yes, you see, yes. it just has been long gone. They've come out. It's mm. it's they're talking about it. They're not denying it. They're now coming out and saying, okay, yeah, because the Cold War is gone. Because the time is right now for them to come out and discuss it. Yeah. And now they are. Yeah. I buy, I buy the timing. I do buy the timing, but uh yeah. But um, I, I'm not buying that everything is on the table. Uh, in fact, uh, that would be irresponsible. I would expect them not to come out with everything at once. That would be crazy. Of then, course. Yeah. Of course. So that footage? Of course. No one's denying that. Okay. We, we got to be grateful for what we can get out of them, right? Yeah, yeah. And what we got out of them was finally saying, yeah, okay, there's stuff out there. We don't know what it is. It's doing weird stuff. It's scaring the hell out of us. We don't know how to, how to deal with it. Maybe you guys can do something about it. We finally got to that point after seven. My entire life has mm -hmm. been spent 
I mean, I'm 67 years old. Mm. My entire life, I was born three years after Roswell. So this, my entire lifetime until this point has been spent with the government saying, no, nothing to see here. Mm. Yeah. We have Blue Book, uh, nothing to see here. None of this, Roswell, no, weather balloons. All this stuff has been going on. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, they come out and say, uh, guess what? Mm. You were right. We were wrong. Um, so that's, for me, that's, that's an accomplishment. So as far as I'm concerned, of course, we're not all the way there yet. Of course, they're holding stuff back. Mm. You know, the Pentagon right now is probably in a flap because they didn't expect this to happen. Uh-huh. But they can't come out and deny it anymore. So, so, so Pentagon wasn't in on this uh, stunt? According to reporting by George Knapp, who was one of the first people to, to break the story and to interview Senator Harry Reid, who funded yeah. it and all the rest of it. According to George Knapp, his sources say the Pentagon's in a flap because they were taken flat-footed by this. They didn't know this was going to happen. Wow, then heads will roll. Well, they're all out now. I mean, you can't go after somebody when the when the all the light is on. Damage you. done, yeah, yeah. Damage is done. You know, we'll, we'll, and they haven't come out and denied it at all. They haven't said anything. And Senator Reid has come out and said, yeah, we did this. And we did this with these senators and with this money and with these corporations. So, so both CIA and Pentagon officials have come out, right? Yes. You uh, need both if it's going to be believable. If CIA, if nobody in CIA has come out. Well, Jim Jim Semivan is part of our group. He was right. CIA for a long time. Okay. Because, mm. um, well, I, I, I can see your point because the national uh, security, the military industrial complex is a very slow oil tanker to turn around. So, sure. so I do not expect like throwing up their arms in the air and yeah, now we're going to come clean and here's all our cards. Still, I think it was uh, this drip that came out. The, the biggest story, like Daniel List, dark journalist said, the biggest story isn't the footage because the footage is, is so poor. I've seen hundred times better footage than that. The biggest story is that actually the mainstream media is covering it and especially New York Times. Exactly. Right? And New York it, Times and Washington Post are on the record being CIA outlets. So there has to be some kind of acceptance from above that they are now dealing with it, trying desperately to control the narrative, maybe. I don't know. But uh, admitting it. Well, I mean, everybody says, you know, this this blows my mind. People say, well, I've seen better footage on YouTube. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> the point is this came from the government. Yeah. Plus, it has what they call the, the chain of, 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 of provenance that goes along with it. So we know exactly where it came from and all the steps that it took. Yeah. Plus, we have the, the analysis of the videos. We hear the guy screaming, what is this? Yeah, you may have seen better UFO footage. You've seen better UFO footage and close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. <laughs> but what we're talking about here is the government saying, uh, declassified, here you go, guys, have fun. That's the difference. Yep. That is the important difference here. People were clamoring for disclosure. We gave them disclosure. And now they're complaining the film is grainy for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and if they have, you know, released Jabba the Hutt speaking to us, there would be, then the 50 scenario would be true, mass panic and too, too yeah. fast adjustment for the sleepwalkers. Yeah. But so, so they better follow up on this because um, if this is all there is, you saw there was actually no reaction almost. It was an underwhelming reaction to it. it. Mainly, it was a bus in, in the usual milieus. Right. Uh, and, uh, of course, a bus in the official institutions. 
But as for the mainstream people, they were just shrugging their, you know, so many uh, covering it and saying, okay, well, it may be, look, what is this? So they have to follow up now to get people more on board if they really have intentions of trying to fuse this schizophrenic split in a culture between the uh, awareness and the insiders. Well, this is what we're trying to accomplish. And the, the reason this whole movement, this this whole project was set up by Tom, was to attract people to this field who maybe secretly always wanted to be involved, but because they were afraid of tenure, losing their tenure academically or losing their jobs or whatever, mm-hmm. they, they, they kept it at arm's length. Now what's happened is this door has been opened, the log jam is broken. So now we have official people saying official things about this phenomenon. So now the door is open for people to start taking it seriously because they have the, the, the blessing of the U.S. government on this thing. That's just really what this amounts to, right? Yeah. So the government says, okay, this is our blessing. This is real stuff. This is it. Yeah, you're right. Okay, there's UFOs. Now it's up to us. It's up to the rest of us to take this and to run with it because the government on its own will probably there's, – there's no margin for them to come clean, as you said, mm-hmm. to, to put all their cards on the table. But this will also encourage other whistleblowers yeah. to come out with their information. This is a very important step because it hasn't been taken before. And so what we have to do is, is support these guys and make sure that other people come forward and the people who are in academia, sciences, the humanities, the arts, whatever, actually do also get on board with this and say, you know, ask – um, their approach to the problem. There, there'll be people approaching this from a psychological perspective, neurobiology, genetics, you know, consciousness studies, quantum physics probably. I mean, all of these various things, astrophysics. People will be able to come in and start donating their expertise mm. and, and comparing notes because now they can. If they had tried to do this, you know, just a couple of years ago, they would have lost their positions in yeah. academia. They would have been laughed off. They would never get published again. This is a very real reality. It's not just a, a military-industrial complex. The academic complex is also very powerful, mm. you know, and the power of other academics to sneer at you and to cut you apart and to, to render your… Skeptics and all that, yeah. Oh, oh it's, it's terrible. Plus, as we all know, there's a lot of military-industrial input to the academic world, right, in terms of grants and funding and all the rest of it. Mm. So this, hopefully, is going to loosen some of that up, and maybe we'll get some, some movement. Hopefully, because it's the same, they have the same tentacles into mainstream media. And obviously, if Washington Post and New York Times comes out with this, it's up for grabs. That's why I could read in our mainstream press suddenly about these reports. They would never have written about it if it wasn't already. I'm not saying CIA calls a Norwegian newspaper and say, you're good to go. It's indirectly, right? Okay, now the the big guys we're uh, looking up to uh, have done it. Now it's safe for us to do it too. Right, But in terms of momentum, we're not there yet that quantum physics and psychiatrics and everybody will. This is just the door has been slightly open. There's a little flimmer of light coming into the dark room. That's it. That's where we're at so far. So the, this has to be followed up. Sure. And you were saying the government, you know, uh, you've been referring all the time to government. But this is also, a, a, I would say, a common misconception in these debates that people talk about the government. What on earth is the government? I'll tell you, first off, as you know better than me, it's so compartmentalized and one hand uh, doing something else than the right and not always cooperating unless there's a common uh, enemy threat. But 
Then we have the postmodern phenomenon, namely that most of this has been lifted from the government and put, like I said, uh, with the Nazis, this doing the same thing today. It's Lockheed Martin is probably have more data on this than you know uh, what you could get from an insider. Right. So how does the privatization of the space matters? What do you think their attitude to all of this is? Do you think everybody's on board and stuff will come out now? No, we don't need everybody to be on board for the stuff to come out. We just need the right people to be on board, right? Mm. We need we need access to to things that we're going to need in the future. Um, we have a guy working on you know developing alternative propulsion systems. Former guy from Lockheed Skunk Works, and people say to me, "Oh my God, he worked for Skunk Works. How can you cooperate?" Well, <laughs> these are the guys who do this for a living. I mean, where else am I supposed to go, yeah, right? Yeah. So these are people who have the background. They've seen this kind of stuff. I mean, they have stuff they can't tell us, but by at the same time, they can work with us to develop an alternate propulsion system. I'm on board with that. Mm, uh, mm. Maybe you can't tell me everything that you know, but the proof is in the pudding. You show me that you just built a flying saucer. I'm cool with that. <laughs> you know. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of criticism and critiques. And you're right. Government is, is one of those words that can mean whatever you want it to mean. Mm. Uh, it's, like, it's like the term deep state. I get annoyed with deep state because it means whatever any particular person says. It always means somebody evil. That's not my state. It's the deep state. So there's there's no deep state. It's it's there's various levels of the state, and it goes down and down and down and down. Uh, well, there are black uh, operations, black economy. Sure. Um, there are aspects that's connected to the state and the private industry. That sure. A hundred percent. I'm on board with that. Yeah, you know? okay. But but to categorize it as deep state is the same as saying the government. Just what is the deep state then? You you define for me exactly who you mean and what you mean by it. And then I'll see if well, I... Or UFO. Or UFO. Is or the, UFO same there. the same there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right? Unidentified aerial phenomenon, that's okay. But it means pretty much the same as unidentified flying object. I don't know the difference quite yet. But except maybe object or phenomenon. No, no. My point is that it can mean many different things. Yes. What are we talking about? Are we talking about machines? Are we talking about creatures that are alive? No, but is that the perspective you that, you've entertained? That's that's the whole point that we're at. The the way the reason this project is called Secret Machines is that we're focusing first on the phenomenon itself, the machine, right? The mm. secret part of it is what's inside of it. What's the motive? Why is it here? So there's a machine, which is a tangible thing, which we can understand from our background from the Industrial Revolution and all the machines we developed in the last few hundred years. We can under, kind of understand that this, this is an object that is made. Perhaps it's manufactured, maybe not. Maybe it's organic. We don't know, mm. but it operates like a machine. The closest thing we can get to comparing it to is a machine. You could say the same for a human being, by the way. Well, okay, sure, which I do in book two. Mm. Right. And the idea of secret, also in, in Greek, you know, the word for secret and the word for mystic is the same word. It's mm. mystis. So something that's secret is mystis, and then the mystical is also mystis. So when you translate the, the term secret machines, it comes out to be mystical machines. Yeah. And that might be another way, another angle of looking at what this is. We have to incorporate this other concept of the mystical broadly speaking, to understand what this machine is and how it operates and where it comes from, etc. So there's the mystical secret aspect to it. Do, am I saying that there's otherworldly aliens piloting? I have no clue. I don't even know what that means anymore. Mm. Um, an otherworldly alien creature can be a bacteria. 
as has been discussed lately in the press, have bacteria attached themselves to the space shuttle, for instance, or mm. or something like that? Have we brought you know alien bacteria into the planet? Our government had a, uh, or probably still has, uh, a department that investigates that alien bacteria brought down by meteors or or whatever that hits the planet. You know, they have to be examined to see if there's life forms on there, microscopic maybe, mm. that are alien. So it alien life form covers a wide range of possibilities. So to say something definitively and to say that these machines are piloted by something organic or by something living uh, is, is still a stretch for me. We, we simply can't make those statements. Are your insiders denying that there's been reversed engineering? I don't think they've come out one way or the other on that. Mm, okay. Um, I think that's kind of something that we've never really discussed. I think the reverse engineering thing, you know, I, I remember, of course, when Philip Corso's book came out, it caused a big stir the day after Roswell, and he talked about all the reverse engineering. And that's been really critiqued and debunked to a large extent by people who claim that that was impossible, that we… You know, yeah, but that's hardly the only example. No, it's hardly the own, but it's just taking Corso's book, you know, as a starting place. Um, mm. So if we if we forget about, for instance, fiber optics and… Uh, CDs and all the rest of the stuff that was claimed to come out of the, the reverse engineering process. Do we have any engineering on this planet that we can point to that we can definitively say was reverse engineered and not the result of actual human development? Because we can't take the position that humans don't invent anything. We all got it from the aliens, no. right? No, there is a, there is a tech. Pharrell argues that there is a technological track back in time, uh, especially if you include Germany, yep. that can account for stuff like some of these uh, exotic, uh, they seem to come out of nowhere, these technologies, but there is actually a trail yes. for it. All of it. Right. I don't know of anything that cannot have said to be, I, I think Dolan disagreed because I, I raised this question with him. He gave me one example, but... Um, for the most part, at least, you can account for a history yeah. of human development. But that doesn't go to say that we couldn't have... I mean, if it's reality, we would have discovered it. It could have speeded up our own. Because we have examples of incredible leaps. Sure. That seems interesting. And this this phenomenon may give us one. I mean, studying right. it may actually be an impetus to basically reverse engineer what we're witnessing. Finding out how it works working out all the kinks and finally developing a prototype of something that we've been watching in the skies for thousands of years. If it hasn't happened already and now they have to, you know, like they say, let, let, let's say Mars, let's go to Mars. You know, many people suspect that as soon as they start advertising that, they've already had means to go there if they haven't even been there. Same with the moon. It's a it's a it's a drip drip uh, hypothesis, right? That sure. okay, we have to we we come so far now, we become purely breakaway. We have to get a culture on board mm -hmm. a little, right? So now let's acclimatize them to this idea. Many people will say that's what's going on here. Now it's time for us to you know get a little upgrade in the culture. Uh -huh. They're still far ahead, but at least let's get out of the medieval ages on this point. That could be the problem. <laughs> So, um, yeah, okay, no protest there. Now, uh, have you seen the so-called NASA footage? Uh, for instance, if you ever saw David Sirida's film called, what's it called again, Evidence for NASA UFOs? 
something like that. I you don't think that so. Famous, but the footage you probably seen, it's thousands upon thousands of huge. Many of them are huge phenomena in our uh, above or around Earth, uh, between Earth and the Moon. So you pulsating. Well, that's interesting. We're, and they're interesting how they look. They all look like dropper stones. Okay. And they and they can't be mere spaceships. If they're spaceships, it's like more people out there than here. They can't all, only be ours, <laughs> our spaceship, because there's so many of them. In fact, the first thing I thought when I looked at that footage was that I'm actually looking at life forms. Mm-hmm. This looks like some kind of cells or whatever, maybe interstellar life forms of some sort. And they come in and out of visual range of frequency. In other words, they can manipulate, uh, they can go down to the infrared or up to the ultraviolet. And occasionally there are within view. So it's so incredible that this is one of the main reasons I'm proud to give the military industrial complex some slack here. Because no matter how many billions, uh, trillions they rob, they can't account for all this phenomenon. But you haven't seen this footage? I don't, I don't believe so. No, it doesn't sound familiar. Jeez. It's so famous. I'm going to send you links. It's going to blow your mind, man. I'm telling you. What's the provenance? Where does it come from? It's official footage. It's uh, NASA footage that was uh, accidentally, because in the beginning, NASA TV were streaming directly. After this footage came out, they had to put in uh, obligatory delay so that they can censor stuff like this, mm-hmm. because it wasn't, it's many footages. One is, is the famous tether incident, I think they call it. Right. So, well, yeah, I think, I, was, I think I've heard about it then. In that case, I think I remember when this happened. I'll send you the link. Yeah. You, you have to update yourself on that. Okay. Um, so, another question uh, indirectly. Have you read Dolan's book, uh, After Disclosure? Uh, yes. AD? I do. I have it. Yeah. I, Dolan is a, is a very remarkable, very, uh, very well respected, very credible guy where this field is concerned. So, uh, I, I respect Dolan's work immensely. So how do you think his scenarios match up compared to what we're seeing going on now? Well, I mean, it hasn't happened yet to the extent that Dolan writes about, right? No. Uh, it's after disclosure, like about a week. Uh, so so we're, we're, we're still <laughs> ramping up. As you say, it seemed like it happened and then, and then it didn't happen. It only really happened in the UFO community. And they took violent sides on this, mm. which they should not have. There's no sides here. We're just coming out and saying, look, these guys came out. They gave us this stuff. They're talking about this. We didn't even know there was a, an advanced aerial threat you know, phenomenon division at the Pentagon until a couple of weeks ago. So you know, take it easy, everybody. Let's just look at what this is. No one's trying to manipulate you. No one is trying to uh, you know, make you believe something that isn't true. We're just saying, here's this stuff. And that's what these guys are saying. Here you go. You know, run with it. So, And everybody was also complaining, well, Tom is in this for money and, you know, he wants our money. And then that Tom dropped all this stuff and everybody for free. I mean, everybody can see it on their own. There's no monetary motive here. Here it is. Here's the footage. Here are the people. These are the interviews go to town. So nothing has been, nothing has been withheld. Like if you pay us 10 bucks, we'll give you more information. That's not what's happening here. No, no, I'm going to get back to that point because that's a big part of the critique and and we have to air that too. But uh, let's not go there yet because I have a couple of more questions here. Uh, Dolan's point was that uh, everybody will try to spin it, obviously. 
Of course they will. I mean, if they didn't, I, I would be amazed. I wouldn't believe I was in reality anymore. But but we're not there yet. And I think your scenario, as you describe it, fits. Yes, you may be right. That's right. what may be going on. But it may also be that they're putting the toe in the water to check what will the reaction be. Right. Should we follow up with more? Let's see. Let's throw this out there and see what happens, sure. right? That's entirely possible. But again, you're you're using they. Right. And it's like saying government. So who's they? Who, yeah. Who's actually responsible? Who I'll tell you. Who can make this decision on their own? I'll tell you. Whoever is in the know and takes decisions. That's what I mean. Who's that? And uh, when I say no, I mean, I'm, I don't mean they know everything about everything. I'm just saying they know something that's not in the official narrative yet. Right. And because obviously, look, I'll tell you one thing, the Harry Reid thing. And the actually, I'll tell you two things. One thing that amazes me is the timing, because although uh, DeLong's project got a blow from the leak, mm -hmm. a bigger blow was uh, going on, namely the fake, right. the Gaia TV thing, the religious thing from Corey Good. It's worse than Greer. Right. At this point, you were you were early involved in this call for disclosure of secret space program. You were on the first uh, conference, right. I think. I think so. Isn't that right? The one in Amsterdam. The one in Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah. And these were serious. Uh, you don't have to be, agree with all the speakers and all that stuff, but it was a sincere inquiry. Uh, it was an upgrade, I think, from the first one, uh, Greer's disclosure project in two thousand and one. I have huge respect for that. Greer has been surfing that kudos for all these years, as he. Mm -hmm. deserve. It doesn't mean I agree with every development in his case, but you were an upgrade. It was getting serious. It was getting attention. Sure. Then comes this bullshit and it completely made a mockery. When people hear now, I never say secret space program anymore. I say classified space program right. uh, because it's been so tainted. Yeah. So if they really wanted to keep this wrapped up in the dark, they didn't have to do anything. But because they now came out, called it even a secret space program and gave some sham of it, some, yeah, a few million dollars, etc. That kind of restored the whole. Uh -huh. <laughs> they helped us big time. Us who want to put focus on it because now we are back to discussing it seriously. So that's actually, I don't know if it was intentional or inadvertently, but it happened. And now we can go back to discuss it seriously. So that's, that's our ping for the insiders. But a criticism here, and I have to be the devil's lawyer, right? Sure. A criticism here is that when they try to say, yeah, it was a, yeah, it was 10, 15 years, whatever. Yeah, it was a few millions. That is bullshit. Because another disclosure that just happened is Catherine Fitz. She got this professor, Harvard guy or something like that, and he got his students on board. And now they've come out with, yep, we're up, up to 50, no, 40, excuse me, $40 trillion mm -hmm. of unaccounted. That's just what's unaccounted. There may be much, much more, but that's what they can prove. And that went mainstream recently. It was in different mainstream uh, papers and television and official academicians coming out, and none of them are killed yet. So I'm thinking either the pressure on the insiders has been so big that, okay, let's drip, drip, drip this out now, or it's just a monkey wrench and, and stuff just happened without any coordination. But do you have any comment to, to all this? Well, in the first place, you remember the reason why I showed up at Secret Space Program in Amsterdam was because of 
the trilogy I had written, Sinister Forces. Mm. And in that trilogy, I, as I do now, I take a position somewhere in, in the middle of two different points of view. For instance, the Kennedy assassination. My approach to that was, let's look at all the weird stuff that surrounds the Kennedy assassination. Let's look at the mountain of coincidences and synchronicities mm. that surround the Kennedy assassination. So you can say it was a, an assassination plot that Oswald did not act alone and he was you know, a, a patsy and all the rest of it. And that's why Kennedy was killed. Or you can say Oswald acted alone and killed Kennedy. What if there's a way in between both of these positions? Mm. And I was writing in Sinister Forces, what if the world itself operates in a certain weird way what if synchronicity is the operating principle behind right. reality what if the kennedy assassination is either a particle or a wave it depends right. on the observer so what if there's another way of looking at this that there's something else taking place it's much deeper than we can manipulate as human beings it's much uh, stronger than that. it's been around for a very long time and our reality is being manipulated you know as we speak by these forces these sinister forces as i call them mm. the old idea that you can manipulate it through magic for instance right is, is valid i think and when i look at my life and stuff that has happened in my life i can actually put that model you said now to my individual microcosmic life and it will make so much sense of a lot of experiences i've had I'll just give you one simple example. This isn't even complicated. This is just a phenomenon. Okay. Uh, when I was 18, I joined uh, uh, one of the Rosicrucian orders out there. Mm -hmm. And, but in my teens, I was like a counterculture guy. So I had been involved in some things that the police, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a law abiding citizen today. Right. Uh -huh. But back then, I don't, uh, nothing, nothing bad, nothing destructive. On the contrary, I was a rebel. But at any rate, at the same day, I got in my mailbox two things. I got a membership card from that esoteric group and it was a, a letter. And it was five numbers. I even remember it to this day. Mm -hmm. And at the same day, I got another letter in the mail, uh, which was from the courts. It was uh, the case, the clearing of the case, whatever. Mm -hmm. And that case number was identical. It was a letter and the five numbers. <laughs> and of course, that triggered my paranoia, right? Of course. Of course. And of course, I thought people were in cohorts, right? Right. Now, I, I know people would probably, even listeners would say, oh, how naive. Of course they were. No, I don't, I don't want to hijack the program today explaining and debunking why there were no coordination there. But I know there wasn't. I know as much as you can know anything, okay? Okay. And, but it was a huge synchronicity. And this is just a minor thing. I have much more complex uh, experiences. So, so I'm totally on board about particle wave. And I'm also on board that if you can try to decode these vibrations, these phenomenons, this, these aspects of reality, there, there has to be some way, there is some way you can maybe manipulate it somewhat. I'm not saying taking control of anything, but this is the magic principle, right? Resonance and dissonance. Yeah. Well, in the... In Secret Machines, Gods, I actually make a point very similar to that. I point to the, um, the grimoires of the, the magicians of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Right. And the, the similarity 
in what they're doing to what we're trying to do with the UFO phenomenon. I mean, they draw elaborate circles on the ground. They put lamps in various places. They're basically recreating a kind of craft, mm. and they have to be in the, in the middle of this. They cannot leave the craft or they'll be destroyed. It's, I mean, or leave the circle, rather. Mm. And then they, they, they summon another being to appear uh, outside of that craft. It's like they're duplicating again, some traumatic experience that they've gone through. And that the magic is this attempt to recreate those, those circumstances and then to have that experience again, to confront a creature, a being not of this world, mm. and trying to manipulate the senses in order to accomplish this. <laughs> uh, and the ceremonial magic is basically a sensory deprivation system, you know, where everything is under the magician's control. Hmm. mimicking the control of the, the craft. So you have everything under your control, and there's a religious component to it, but there's also the idea of the focus of concentration, energy, will, and all the rest of it. Plus, the environment is set up to look like you're on, you're on a magic carpet or you're somehow flying through the air and you're talking to these creatures from either heaven or hell or wherever, and you're, you're having this communication with them getting them to do things, which is a very shamanic process again, Absolutely. but tailored to a European mindset, I suppose. But to me, I was reproducing in the book pictures of the magic circles and pictures of saucers, right? Mm. The popular drawings that have come down to us through the last 70 years or so, and showing the similarities and why they, they look so similar, and just asking the question, not insisting that this is a united uh, concept, but asking the question, why why do these things look alike mm -hmm. uh, and especially when the the motivation is so similar to rise on the planes to travel in space to meet otherworldly creatures it's it's part of the ufo phenomenon so perhaps magic is is an old technology you know as arthur c clark uh, said was it arthur c clark or was it um, asimov now i'm getting my my authors mixed up who said that um, modern technology is indiscernible for magic uh, yeah yeah, uh, one of those guys said that. One of those guys, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's a valid point. Yeah. I get image in my mind <laughs> that the magician inside his circle, when he invokes or, or, or communes with some entities in another dimension or whatever, maybe to them uh, he will appear like a UFO. <laughs> exactly. I actually make that point in the book. Okay. Exactly. That's a yeah. good point. And yeah. another good point, you, you just by passing touched upon that, that deserves a little comment that's that yes they uh, this has been my uh, i've never been the one to believe these creatures like because all of these creatures they either they look like something from our insects world or they look like something from our aqua world right. or they look like something from the lizard world and they're never indistinguishable from each other poor you know yeah. was the creator so out of material when he created creatures in this huge cosmos <laughs> that Okay, mankind, yeah, sure, they can look distinct and even genders and everything, right? Right. But, okay, oh, uh, we, I used up all my best clay on Earth. Now yes, I, right. <laughs> I only have these archetypal yeah. robots uh, left but, but, to, you know, give them that appearance. Well, you, you just, you just hit on it. What if they're not organic beings the way we understand it? What if they are robots, androids of some kind? which would be able to withstand, you know, space travel over tremendous mm -hmm. distances, the G-forces that are involved in making those sharp right turns in midair mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. What if we are dealing not with, with creatures the way we understand it, not with organic beings, but with a form of robot or android or cyborg? 
Or what if you're talking about manifestations that our collective subconscious has conjured? Or what if it's a combination of both? Mm. Hybrid. I, I, I think of of, um, of Whitley Strieber often in this context, right? Because he has not, you know, wavered in his insistence for all this time. Nope. Uh, he has changed, in a sense, his relationship to what he calls the visitors. But generally speaking, there's a lot in Whitley Strieber's discussions of these, which parallels very strongly, as I pointed out in a review of his last book, points out very strongly to to tantras, the, the tantras of, of, of India and Tibet, the idea of the male and the female, the idea of these blue-skinned creatures, you know, as we find from Indian iconography, and a lot of this, the, this, these kinds of ideas of being here and being not here, of being transported from one place to the next, communicating in a sense telepathically, but at the same time, not having the same emotional range that we do mm-hmm. at all. Mm. having a completely narrow focused emotional range to me that says a, a great deal it may be if i be, may be allowed to anthropocentrize and to make an anthropocentric judgment exactly. it may be that we are dealing with robots cyborgs of some kind with consciousness mm. advanced to the point of artificial intelligence where they can appear to be conscious just like you know some of our computer programs now appear to be conscious they they can answer questions they can relate to you they can do a certain number of things that are like us, but it's limited. It's mm. limited to certain types of, of reactions and certain types of actions. So what if that's what we're dealing with? It's just a possibility. It's a speculation. And I'm not saying this because I have any you know, inside information, because I don't. All I'm saying is that this is one of the possibilities that I've been looking at for, for book two, uh, to see is this really what we're talking about, a, a artificial intelligence in a kind of created being of some kind. We're almost there right now ourselves. We are so close to developing that, and the reason they're giving for it is to man spacecraft, you know, to go far distances where we can't go. So, you know, what if they've already done that and they're doing it to us? Exactly. I see see an evil circle, potential evil circle. This is completely science fiction maybe, but, you know, most science fiction comes through. What if we, because of this phenomenon, speed up stuff like artificial intelligence, and that becomes such a brilliantly intelligent phenomenon that eventually they can manipulate time and then they go back in time and they become the cause of what created them, if you see what I mean. Sure, of course, why not? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting scenario. They're, they're jump-starting their own creation. Right? Exactly. We, we, it's the old um, Einsteinian paradox about... Now, if you if you know if you go back and kill your forefather, right? It's a kind of the same mm-hmm. phenomenon. But right. let's not stray too much philosophically. I want to say one thing though. You made a very good point here because uh, you, you said, uh, you, actually, you mentioned Strieber, and he's a pretty good example of what happens to many people who have encounters. He's he's turned more and more esoteric in his late yes. years. Mm-hmm. It started very basic, right? Uh, but now he's getting more and more mystique. And you see how many encounter people turn into some kind of spiritual perspective. And this goes back to the fact that you can't uh, distinguish. Uh, You said religion, but religion is just a language. So even if these are religious phenomena, that's just a language to describe something in reality, like the ancients. Precisely. Yeah, that's your point. I know that. Uh, So, but that needs to be emphasized. 
So yeah, and I think that's what Whitley's going through as well. Uh, the book that came out that he jointly uh, he co-authored with Jeffrey Kripal, the uh, the supernatural, uh, is is remarkable for this reason. And we have Whitley Strieber talking about his experiences in one chapter, and then Jeffrey Kripal, a very well respected professor of religious studies, I believe he's at Emory or Rice, I forget, at one of the universities, a very well-respected guy, written a lot of books on, he wrote on Esalen, he wrote on Indian Tantra, and a lot of these things, mm. uh, is, is co-authored with Whitley because he understood exactly what you're saying. Whitley is describing something that we call religious or mystical, really. But what does that really mean anymore? And at this point in our advance along the technological paths and everything else where things are getting kind of confused, they're talking about convergence, they're talking about trying to understand consciousness, they're talking about bending space and time. We're in a kind of, we're in this sort of the, the, Transition the so. outer, outer court, the outer court of an inner temple. Yeah. And it, it may be that that's what we're experiencing at Whitley, by being very honest about his experiences, excruciatingly honest, I would say, especially in his late in his last book, mm. he's talking about the afterlife. He's talking about life after death. He's gotten to the point now, where, starting with his abduction experiences in the '80s in upstate New York, he's now all the way to talking talking about surviving death and what parts of us survive death. Uh, and he's talking about this in relationship to his his wife Anne, who passed away a little while ago. Yeah. So this is we you and I discussed Thomas Vaughn at some point, <laughs> some, mm. a year ago or, or so. And Thomas Vaughn was the alchemist who was practicing alchemy with his wife. And his wife died before he did. And he kept getting contact, in a sense, with Rebecca Vaughn. And he kept on praising Rebecca's uh, contribution as if it was much more important than his own. And now we're seeing sort of the same thing happen with Whitley Streeper and Anne. Yeah, and, and he, he, he even got he even got the book, you know, the recipe or whatever back from her. Yes. Mysteriously, suddenly. Right. I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, she was dead. She took it uh, to her death. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. What are we talking about and how does this relate to the UFO phenomenon? The problem is in popular culture, they lump all of this stuff together in one basket. Yeah. If you believe in ghosts, if you believe in UFOs, if you believe in magic or astrology, it's all the same thing. They may be more right than they know. <laughs> you know, there may be yeah. a lot of similarity here because it's about consciousness. It's about the ghost in the machine. Yeah. You know, it's about what moves that machine. So that's why I think it's very important to just to, to really investigate this phenomenon. I was never that interested in it when I was younger. Uh, mm. My interests were were in politics, history, conspiracies, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of that. Then I got into the Nazi thing in a big way. Uh, because there was something there to research. And yet, at the end of all of this, I realized <laughs> that this is this is the key to everything. The UFO phenomenon is going to give us a great deal of information if we can approach it seriously. Yeah, We're going to be able yeah. to decode a lot of this, finally. Yeah, no, I'm totally on board. And I have the same journey in many ways. But I want to say, when it comes to... I mean, if we accept that we live in... Uh, universe that has a physical aspect to it i mean i'm not going to go flat earth here so don't worry <laughs> I, I don't think we're inside a box but but if it is like we imagine it is and even you know today you're a kook if you don't think there's intelligent life in the universe right. it used to be opposite but today now they come full round to that so let's say that is a fact then obviously there has to be planets with life and i've always been most sympathetic to the ancient claim because the ancient have many claims here that 
so fits the these scenarios we're talking about. For instance, they say, I mean, if these things are not you, I mean, if these things are not like us, and if there there's even a robotic aspect to them, then that validates some of the claims that the human being, not necessarily the earthling, but the human being is the prime uh, manifestation in existence. Mm-hmm. That's what reality has conjured up as because we have so we go all the way back to the source. We are divine. These things lack it. They want a life force, whatever, Willem Reich, Orgonite, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But another aspect I've entertained is that I mentioned that I think some of them can be alive or, or have consciousness somehow, and, and, and you did too. But I'm saying if you can, if there is intelligent beings around in the universe, I think the old ancient claim, the other ancient claim that human beings are a cosmic template for any intelligence that reaches our level, because you know as well as I do that you cannot distinguish consciousness from senses and from language. All that is, is intrinsical interwoven to each other. Sure. And so, in a way, they're saying that when we have like two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, etc., we have a specific type of consciousness in this perspective a sun can be unconsciousness but that's a different kind of entity right yeah. so they say anything at our three-dimensional four-dimensional maybe level will be humanoid will be human-like and that if you wiped out all the people on the earth and life began again it would go back to this template that we have now in that perspective it means that you should be able to sooner or later if you don't destroy yourself you should be able to develop some kind of craft that can bring you in both space and time because those things can't be distinguished that's the problem they often separate that as if it's two different phenomenon but it's the same phenomenon if you by definition if you travel in space you do travel in time sure but nonetheless you could do that and that means that we should expect that if any people in the classical terms of extraterrestrial has managed to move all the way to where we are they should be human-like hmm. those kinds of yeah of, that, th- th- that part of ufo yeah that's that's, that's it's very possible um in, in studying genetics and i've been in I've been fascinated with genetics for, for decades. In studying genetics, uh, the idea that maybe the same genetic code on a different planet, which has a different atmosphere, a different combination of chemicals, would produce a different-looking organism if it really developed into an organism it has always fascinated me. Is that is that what would happen, or would it eventually develop into something humanoid? Right, right. Um, of course, everything that lives on this planet contains DNA. So trees contain DNA, you know, it's, it's, uh, everything has DNA that lives. So there's not much similarity between me and a tree. <laughs> not much, you know, maybe, not. maybe some. <laughs> you know. yeah. So, you know, what's the possibility of communication between myself and the tree? We both have DNA. We both have, our, our genetic code comes from the same ultimate source. It just, mm. you know, developed along different lines. Can I communicate with that tree? Um, but the tree is a different kind of, that's my point, the tree has a different kind of consciousness, it's a different kind of creature. So does the I'm consciousness s- come first? Well, according to the ancient it does, it's, it's yep. the seed, right? The template. Right. Which is why they say a human will be, in, in our type of existence, they will be humans. If we can communicate with them as they are creatures, instead of being insects that look kind of like humans, they have arms and eyes, they will be humans. 
That's the the doctrine here. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm not saying this explains everything. If it explains even anything, uh, I'm just saying that's one ingredient we have to entertain. Sure. But if we do that, Peter, and here's what I'm getting at, then it means that we can do the same thing. And if we can do the same thing, voila, enter the military-industrial complex. Sure. Because we're talking about the one box of all of our boxes that has not been penetrated yet, that hasn't been opened. We've opened all kinds of boxes in arts and sciences and mm -hmm. everything, religion, all these boxes. Consciousness is always referred to as the black box because we don't know what's in there, how it operates or where it comes from. And it's the one thing that is actually open to every one of us individually. We don't need disclosure to go into consciousness. You know, we don't need the imprimatur of the government or the church or anything else. Those will be the lost people I would consult. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. But just, just say, you know, if you really want disclosure, disclosure is ground up. It's from, it starts with us. We, we have the keys to this, the disclosure that we're looking for. Mm. Um, so if we can understand our own consciousness, if we can take the time and effort to understand who we are and why we react to things the way we do – we might start to understand what this phenomenon is ahead of everybody else. I, I yeah. remember that in my lifetime, some of my most vivid experiences, the experiences I remember the most strongly, have been dreams. You know, right. and dreams are not real, right? That's what they tell us. You know, a dream is just this accident of the brain firing while you're asleep and doing all this other stuff. They explain it very well. But I've had some dreams that are so vivid, I have never forgotten them. And they're more vivid than what I had for lunch yesterday. You know, I can remember the dream mm. really clearly. So what does that mean for consciousness? How does that dream, for instance, or the memory of it, affect my consciousness? And if we say that it does affect it, we've got to rewrite the rule books on consciousness. Right. Because the dream is not an excretion no. of consciousness that just sort of goes away. You know, it's an accident of sleep. The dream has implanted itself somehow in my memory, in my consciousness in a certain way, and is making me see things, you know, slightly differently than I would before the dream. So, and I've had a few of those in my life. I think everybody has. Yeah. No, not only that, it activates your senses without the physical yeah. Uh, aspects of them being even now if you say to yourself anything you, you let's say you say in your mind peter you can hear yourself saying that yeah even though no uh, sound vibrations have been uttered exactly and can't be picked up by the air still it's the exact same experience mm -hmm. as if it was done physically yeah in a way that's a metaphor for for what we're discussing here when it comes to ufos as physical contra consciousness phenomenon yeah, right sure it's a kind of a metaphor it is, yeah and i think that's what we're i think that's where we're headed in this in this project eventually that it's going to lead us to to a confrontation with what consciousness really is because we're going to need to know more about it to understand the phenomenon i'm i'm convinced of it mm. the the technology is it's advanced more than anything you might learn in engineering graduate school, right? This is this is something that is going to require a different kind of head to understand, a different kind of mindset, uh, perhaps a different approach to physics to, to understand. So, yeah, consciousness is going to be essential. We're going to have to, as I say, think outside of the box, but what what box are we thinking outside of? Maybe, <laughs> maybe the black box. Pandora's box. <laughs> Pandora's box. Most, most assuredly, yes. But uh, I hope you're right. In fact, I go so far as to say, from your mouth to the heirs of the gods. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll hope for it. Yep. Okay, so let's uh, round off this part with another practical question. You said 
You're writing a new book now uh, with him, Tom DeLong. Uh, Chasing Shadows, that was book one, right? No, Chasing Shadows is a completely different... Chasing Shadows is a novel. Oh, that's a fiction, yeah. Mm. That's fiction. That That is a novelization, let's say, of um, of what we were doing. The right. author, A.J. Hartley, spent a lot of time with us uh, talking to people and talking to us and trying to uh, get to a get to a place where um, he felt comfortable with the, with the material and what we were trying to do or trying to say. So the book is based on a lot of the information he got from us, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Hmm. So, so book two is uh, so book one in this uh, nonfiction series. That's the gods, yes. uh, man and machine. Right. So, what's book two then? That's what you're working on now. Okay. Book one is technically called Secret Machines, Gods. That's it. Oh, okay. So, so book two will be Secret Machines, Man, ah. and then the third will be Secret Machines, War. Gods, Man, and War is the name of the whole trilogy together. Right. Yeah. It's not that easy to see from the cover of the book, and I've had to explain this so many times that we've probably okay. screwed up the titling somehow. But anyway, it should be Secret Machines Man is the book that should come out next, mm. and that's based more on we do uh, examination of genetics, mm. of um, consciousness, of uh, a lot of scientific AI, artificial intelligence um, the cyborg uh, android kind of concepts and what they imply. All of these things are brought up in, in two. And in book three, we talk about the security implications, I suppose you might call in mm. Secret Machines War. And we go back and look at some of the things that have happened in the past with interactions between the UFO phenomenon and military you know, response and that sort of thing. So there's three different aspects to it. And we're trying to make this one big experience that you have the religious kind of stuff in book one, you move into the, the, the scientific stuff, which mm. as I told you, we don't really see as separate, um, except artificially separated, uh, from religion, but we go into the, the consciousness sort of ties it in back and together again. And to a certain extent, so does the genetic study. Mm. And then from there we go into the national security, uh, and just general security implications and, you know, the military, uh, approach to it if you're a hammer every problem is a nail yeah. you know and we, we sort of critique that as well you do so we're not we're no we're not entirely oh. anti-greer on this you know we do feel that we have to be prepared we should take this seriously it could pose a potential threat and we've also come to realize that many of our most important scientific discoveries were made because of war Hmm. We're made under a circumstance of threat. And what we need right now is a massive undertaking to understand this phenomenon. And if it has to be that this is because of a national security uh, interest, because we may be threatened, which is true because we have no clue if we're being threatened or not right now, then this might be a way to go. This might be a way to get people galvanized because we need people galvanized to really understand this phenomenon. And we may wind up thinking... It's just our space brothers, and they've come here to help us, yeah. and that's fine with me if that's what it turns out to be. But in the meantime, until we know better, plan for peace, but prepare for war. You know, it's mm. so you're just basically making a case for right. We we can't dismiss that scenario, but you're not necessarily advocating that scenario. You mean the the, the warlike scenario? Yeah, yeah, the conflict. No, what I'm no, I'm not saying that we should approach this phenomenon 
as a threat and take action accordingly. I'm saying we don't know. Mm. And it's because we don't know that we have to be very careful. Yeah, yeah. And we have to assume that there's a threatening aspect to this, whether by intention or accident, and that we have to take steps, whatever steps we can to defend ourselves. Since we don't know what the phenomenon is, how can we defend ourselves against it, right? That's the next question. Mm. So the answer to that is, well, go and find out. Find out what this is. Take these reports seriously. Collate all of the the airline pilot and the the, the military pilots uh, reports of UFOs. Take all of this. Collate it. Try to to figure out something. Is there a pattern? You know, is there a pattern geographically or in terms of timing or or anything else? Can these patterns be associated with things that happen on Earth? Mm-hmm. Can they be associated with things that happen someplace else in the solar system or in the galaxy? Uh, is there ways of of doing this? But we have to do it. You know, we have to to take this step, and that's because we have to protect ourselves. I think that's a very good rationale for spending the time and the money to go after this problem in a very serious, concerted way, multidisciplinary. Find out what this really means. We're going to find out a lot about ourselves and about reality and about our planet in the process. So what's what's wrong with that? As long as we're not shooting something, (laughs) let's just go and find out what we can do to defend ourselves. Build a fortress, not... Not a not a bomb. Try to find out how do we protect human civilization from this. If we can't, then we have to we better understand what it is, mm-hmm. so that we can prepare prepare ourselves mentally, psychologically, however you want to put it. If we, if there's no way to defend ourselves, if it's beyond our capability, then we need to know. Then what's our next step? We need to have the discussion. So true. I'm going to take you up on that too after the break, but the man you're biting over, you're chewing over huge areas here. Yeah. This project, yeah. this trilogy. You, you, you're going to be based to your typewriter for years, it sounds. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been doing almost, I would say, nothing but this since 2015. Um, I've broken it apart. I have published a novel in, you know, in, the mean, in the meantime, Lovecraft Code, and I've written a follow-up to that as well. But when I write the novels, that's really to take a break from writing the Secret Machines books, right? That's almost a vacation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So so, um, everything else will be on hold for a couple of years for you now then? I I believe so, yeah. Mm. But uh, no, but uh, this is probably one of the most important things you can go into, so I support you there. Yeah. Okay, let's take a break, Peter. Yes, perfect. And then uh, I have very important follow-up questions. Of course, there's been a lot of criticism, and I'm going to uh, also air that with you. Sure, no problem. Okay, cool. So let's take five. Okay, okay. yep, yep, good, good, good. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks. 